0: Welcome to Book to where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson.
1: And I'm Livius Nedden. Uh, this week, um, no no reading again. Well, we have been reading a lot lately, haven't we? I just feel like I'm always saying that we didn't read something.
0: Um, and yeah, we're
1: always, I think we're always, I think, I feel like we're always reading. We are always reading. Whatever. This week, though, what we're going to read you is a list of people that read <laughs> for us so we didn't have to. <laughs> Um Rob and I were lucky enough to be included in um a, yet another noir at the bar Chicago put on by Jay Kingston, who was an awesome guy for having us uh having us around to do the uh the kind of like hosting slash emceeing duties
0: yeah yeah uh he he <laughs> it's funny because it was kind of unshared at the beginning he hit us up and he said hey you guys, this is happening this date and uh we replied and we're like uh are we hosting it or are we just guests? and he said that we were actually hosting so that was very nice
1: it was very nice and very cool of him to include us so historically this went down on april 30th at 7 p.m at sylvie's lounge on irving park in chicago um and they cleared that place out for us huh
0: (laughs) yeah there was um it was like an exclusive event almost
1: yeah it was very cool the um you walk in, it looks like a regular little neighborhood bar, but then they have this this kind of back room area. Like you, you kind of walk around in a in a U shape, and you get this place where there's a stage and these really trippy, cool like yellow, green, blue lights, a little Christmassy, mm-hmm. but uh, very, very cool ambiance in that place. I, I like that. That may be one of my favorite places that we've been to a reading at.
0: Definitely quick access to the bar, so you don't have to go walk all over the place. Like you can just step over and grab a drink while someone's reading, and it wouldn't be you know you wouldn't miss anything. Um, one one crucial thing for me is that the to- the bathrooms are individual, and they lock. I like my <laughs> privacy when I'm using when I'm urinating.
1: So that was that. was a big <laughs> selling point for me. I, I, that must have been a different a different like Facebook group message where you're like, "Hey Jake, what are the bathrooms like in this place?"
0: Oh man, I, I <laughs> let's just say that I drank more knowing that I
1: could pee freely. Um Yeah, and they had they had some of that whatever weird crafty beer stuff that you like too.
0: I know, I had a half acre daisy cutter IPA, which was nice. Olivia hated his beer.
1: Yeah, what did I have? Do you remember what it was?
0: Yeah, you had a Revolution anti hero. Yeah, IPA had a
1: cool can. Very cool looking can. Yeah,
0: yeah it's good stuff. Yeah. Chicago both Chicago local beers.
1: If you have a if you have a diet coke to wash it down with afterwards, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> I'm sure it is. All right. Um, um, yeah, good place. Yeah, I, I seriously one of one of the better places, and I'll be really honest. One of the better readings I've attended in that every reader was like just just brought it a hundred percent and did an absolutely fantastic job. Yeah, they killed it. Yeah. So people might be surprised to hear this, but we, we don't always think that everyone did phenomenal.
0: I'm sure if pressed hard enough, we could think of specific examples of people that
1: just totally sucked. But should I start listing them now?
0: Um, well, let's, <laughs> mm, let's see how we feel in a little bit. Okay, all
1: right. We're going to break this up into two episodes for you, so you don't have to listen to 90-something-plus minutes of uh, of us and these readers. Um, so you're already going to get more of us. We did the MCing duties, which means this, uh, this side is pretty light. We don't have to read bios or anything. All we have to do is tell you who's coming up. That's right. It's kind of like doing Crime Wave in a way. We just kind <laughs> of say, hey, this is a thing, and then you listen to the thing. Oh God, we're now we're now at the point where we have to do less and less work. We just tell people this is what you're going to listen to. Yeah.
0: Well, this is what you're going to listen to this time. So the first uh, the first episode we're going to do is the first half of the of the show. We're not mixing them up. Everybody actually hit pretty good times, so we don't have to worry about one one short story pairing up with a long story. Um, so the evening started out with uh, the noir at the bar. Kind of, I called him stepfather. And then we kind of played with the title a little bit, but then at one point he was excited about the stepfather title because he could tell people "I fuck your mother." Um, I don't know if you heard that, Livius.
1: <laughs> no, I certainly did not hear that, but um, <laughs> I could see I could see why that has the appeal for him yeah.
0: that it does. So I think he's growing that the title's growing on him. But uh, he he read a, a, a new story for a, a Jewish noir anthology, and the story was called "Twisted Shiksa."
1: Yep, and then right after Jed, we're going to go into Libby Fisher Hellman, who's who's new to me, not someone I am familiar with, but and as you did a terrific job with this story, I was a little little worried that it might the the racial overtones were a little a little much, but I think it played out very well. I I, I agree, I thought it was good. So, um, I guess we should just get right into it. Here is Jay Kingson introducing us and us introducing Jedediah Ayers.
2: Welcome to Noir at the Bar, Chicago. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's good to see you. You're looking good. You're looking okay yourself, okay. You're looking fit, <laughs> healthy. <laughs> Sexy, even really, this crowd. Good looking crowd. Been to Noir at the bars at uh, LA, in LA, and uh, St. Louis, Arkansas. But the crowd here, there's just something about you people. It's Chicago. Exactly. It's a, it's a Chicago sexiness. Okay? No, now you're
3: but- into creepy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would like to meet you all out back after the show um, where we collectively. Um, no, but thank you all for coming. Uh, we have an amazing lineup of people. Um, we have here tonight to read for you Dan O'Shea, Chicago legend. Dan O'Shea, <laughs> Chicago institution. Uh, Liddy Fisher Hellman. Um, all the way from the great state of Michigan, we have the great Keith Lawrence. Right <laughs> I'm to meet that guy for a while. And from the state of Missouri, loves company. A state which is doing its best to make Illinois look good.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> For God's sakes, don't tell our <laughs> A state which makes Illinois look like a model of good governance and ethical policing. <laughs> <laughs> From the great state of Missouri, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. our latest our greatest living mayor, Jed I As many of you doubtless know, Jed is the co-founder of Noir the Bar, so this is mostly his fault, so blame him. Um, I'm going to uh, turn things over to a couple of wonderful human beings. You know them if you were here at the last Noir the Bar uh, from the podcast Booked. Uh, Rob and Lib, come up. They'll introduce everybody. And uh, oh, one more thing for these guys to take over. Uh, we have books from each of the readers um, over here for sale. Make sure you get yourself some. Uh, Jed has been nice enough uh, to bring some books to kind of sweeten the deal. I'll let him tell you about that. But now I'll turn things over to the book guys.
1: I'm Livius and this is Rob and together we make up the book podcast. Um, we'll give you a quick little bit about us. Uh, four years in the making, we've been doing this. We're a weekly podcast. We review books, interview authors, and um, when we're really lazy, we come to readings, record other people's work, and skip a whole week of reading anything so that we can broadcast this later. So be warned, anything you say will be recorded and may be attributed to you personally if we can figure out who you are. So the whole thing's being recorded. Um, big thanks to Mr. Hinkson for allowing us to be part of this. Um, it's, always, uh, it's always an honor to be able to, to participate. We're, we don't write or don't write very much or very well. So it's always nice to be included in a, in a group of fabulous writers. So uh, we're going to be doing the introducing tonight. We will not be taking an intermission tonight. So if you were the least bit thirsty, please feel free to quietly get up and see the young lady at the bar who will take care of your drinking needs. And uh, I'm going to pass it over to Rob, who's going to tell us a little bit about our first
0: reader. All right, so starting it out for the night is um, this tall drink of water, Jedediah Ayers. A little bit about him. The, the bio that he sent us was, Jedediah Ayers was born that way. <laughs> so we had to improvise a little bit and add a little bit to it. Uh, Jed has written a few books of his own. He's got, and I'm not going to get it in the right order, Peckerwood. He's got Fierce Bitches and a buckload of shorts. Did I miss any? Nope. Also nope. made okay. motion pictures. <laughs> <laughs> made it also, so yes, adapted into a, a feature-length film. Uh, he's also edited uh, an anthology called Dicks, which is over here. And he did the editing with Scott Phillips for Noir at the Bar Volumes 1 and 2. Um, I like to call Jed the stepfather of Noir. <coughs> because uh, Noir at the Bar kind of started out with... Um, uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, one of those P.E. areas, right, <coughs> by Peter Rozowski
4: Fuck Peter Rozovsky. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but really, it was Jed that kind of got the big ball rolling. He uh, he brought it to St. Louis with uh, Scott, and it hit its big popularity out there, and now there's regularly occurring noir at the bars in Los Angeles, New York, Portland, uh, Jed's St. Louis, uh, here in Chicago now, and... A ton of other places. So Peter may have started it, but uh, this great man who really kind of brought it to what it is now. So
2: without further ado, Generous.
4: Thanks. That was altogether too much ado. Um, I, I'm reading first tonight, and I. Usually, if I'm reading in St. Louis, uh, I try to make it really short. But when I traveled from St. Louis, I thought, no, I need to bring my, I need to really bring something to them. Um, so I may start skipping around in here. I was, I was hoping I'd read the last, and then I could like edit it for time uh, on the fly. Um, I was invited to uh, submit something to an anthology coming out later this year called Jewish Noir. Uh, because I wrote a book about rednecks. And, um, I, anyway, they, they, they liked the story. They took the story, um, and it has uh, its. Uh, it, it does have uh, ties into uh, the Ferguson mess, which uh, is being echoed in uh, Baltimore this week. It seemed kind of, kind of timely. So anyway, uh, this is my stab at uh, you know. Jewish noir. Uh, It's called Twisted Shiksa. (laughs) Eighty years after Charlie Berger kicked the Ku Klux Klan out of his corner of southern Illinois, I got the swastika tattoo on my chest, artfully reworked into a rose. Or vagina. or Whatever the fuck it was, it wasn't a swastika any longer. Pop told me once that I was named after the tuppled yid, and it felt like a betrayal to have put that shit on my body in the first place. I'd been a scared kid just trying to stay alive when I did it, and it seemed like a good idea. I never did fit in with the Peckerwoods in Jefferson City, but I never had much trouble from them either. Originally, I thought I'd have it refashioned into a six-pointed star when I got out, but I decided that was pushing it. When Kate asked me what the blocky ink design on my chest was, I told her, Cubist. When I asked her why she'd pawned my Boobie's kiddish cup to buy Crank, she told me, Obvious. She sang for an outfit called the Taoist Cowboys, who were a regular attraction <laughs> at Carl's, the borrower i had been working for five years. When they'd take the stage, all eyes would be on St. Kate as she shook her skinny Scotch-Irish ass and tossed her hair in ropey red braids to the shit-kicker stylings of the band the R.F.T. had once described as Aerosmith, reincarnated as a cowpunk cult, fronted by the banshee of Haley Mills. Don't Think about it too hard. (laughs) The first time I noticed how turned on she was by violence, she was sucking blood out of my nose. It wasn't busted, but that third turd from the left outside Carl's had landed a lucky elbow before turning to run. I'd reeled back, pulled my pea shooter, let it spit, and winged him as he turned the corner. He gave a comical yelp, and his retreating form canted to one side, but he didn't go down. Kate had her own bruise from the skirmish rising among the freckles beneath her right eye, and at the Cowboys' next gig, she looked like a raccoon dressed as Courtney Love for Halloween, but damn if she didn't work it, compensating for the indistinction of the lyrics by forcing them through her puffy lips with gale force. The quartet of punks making a grab for the Cowboys' equipment outside Carl's hadn't expected the level of resistance Kate had put up, and all they got away with was a a guitar and a Grammar three of amphetamines in the case. Whoa, 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 nice shooting text she'd said, reaching for my pop gun. Let me see that thing. Uh Uh-uh, I snatched it away from her grasp. Well, I'd say you tried to miss him, she'd beamed, but didn't quite. That was awesome. What do you pack? Well, I said, trying to tuck the damn thing away again. It's no Desert Eagle, great big old pistol. I mean, 50 caliber. She didn't miss beat. No, but you're still a badass Hebrew. I did a double-take of both her recognition of the song and my tribe. She stood on her toes, ran her hand between my legs, and licked the blood trickling out of my nostril and into my beard. What kind of Jew boy likes country music, anyway? Her tongue in my orifice and hand on my crotch were equally exciting and off-putting. What, you never heard of Kinky Friedman? (laughs) That night she wrecked my bed, and in the morning kicked me in the head, metaphorically. The kiddish cup wasn't worth much to anybody else. I noticed it was gone about an hour after she was, but it held significance for me. When I'd gone down for selling crack to an undercover policeman, Bobby Malman was my only family I had left. Mom split when I was a kid, dad died when I was in high school, and Bobby had taken me in. She was an old school conservative and a good woman, but her progeny had given her plenty of reason to be ashamed. She'd hired me a good lawyer who, gave, who got me a short sentence, and she tried to visit me in Jeff City. Taking a cab all the way from Del Mar Garden's retirement community, but I, I wouldn't see her. I was too frightened of somebody else making more of my ethnic heritage than I ever had. She wrote me letters, prayed for me, died a month before I was released. I didn't get to attend her funeral, but I'd had that Nazi abomination on my body obscured before I visited her grave. The cup was all that survived of her, especially for me, and I walked out of the lawyer's office holding it, the entirety of my earthly estate, my spiritual one as well. If I didn't suspect, suspect Kate would get off on it, I might have hit her. Instead, I just said, show me where, and followed her directions to the pawn shop, where I paid more to get it back than it was really worth. At their next gig, I helped myself to an amplifier. Nobody said shit. They just borrowed one from those hoot and holler boys, who knew better than to complain. Still, they worked a cover of Choctaw Bingo into their set that night. Kate shot a finger pistol at me from the stage during our verse. I was angry all over again. Of course, that had me worked up enough to want another go at her, but that night she brought another date. Big guy with a spiderweb tattoo on his I-shitting neck. <laughs> I seethed the bits, but steered clear, satisfied to post the amplifier on Craigslist and wash my hands of her. She was leaning on my car when my shift ended. Neck tattoo was heeled behind her. Hey, Charlie Malman, I think you got something that belongs to me. Is that how you see it? Neck tattoo straightened up and joined the adult's conversation. You want to give it back, or should I just take it? Before I could answer, he dropped a cinder block through the rear window and was reaching inside. He claimed the amp and stood holding it while Kate shot me with her finger gun again. She backed out of my way while I fished the keys out of my pocket and opened the driver's side door. She spoke to me in a self satisfied, taunting voice. Charlie, love, you still want to fuck me? I did. I do. Her eyebrows arched and she licked her fingertips, slipped them down the front of her jeans. God. Damn it. I grabbed the tire iron under the front seat, snapped the asshole's jaw with a single swipe. I opened the passenger side door and she climbed in. We left Neck Tattoo where he dropped next to the amplifier, and they both looked broken. Not gonna lie, turned me on too, but I didn't take her back to my place. Agony separates itself from ecstasy pretty clearly with a few hours removed, but her scrapes and bites and tiny fists beating on me felt indistinguishable from her kisses and licks and probes in the moment. Ten miles north of us, the local government was showing its ass to the world in the second act of a totalitarian PR clusterfuck Its cops in full army drag maced and shot rubber bullets as citizens assembled to express shock, hurt, and anger over the shooting of an unarmed black teenager by a white cop, but wasn't anything we were paying attention to. Instead, I awoke several hours later on the futon, surrounded by the cast of walking tall, looking like they'd run out of cousins to fuck. The leader of the pack, a six foot shiny dome cut-off sleeve hazelwood hick with pickup truck testicles, I have no doubt, gave me the stink eye and asked if I'd been fucking his little sister. Sorry, were you not finished? I didn't even see the kick. I heard it right in the nose again. I hope that at least I got some blood on his boot. Through blurry eyes I spotted Kate in the corner of the room, clenching her hand between her thighs. What do you want, Bryce? Bryce looked at me pointedly and acted cagey. Kate rolled her eyes. What? Just say it. He's okay. I want you to go stay with mom and dad for a while. Well, you can want in one hand and shit in the other. Bryce wasn't hearing any of it. He told his crew to pack up some of her clothes and toiletries, and they hopped to like good little toadies while Kate screamed at them that they better not touch any of her stuff. Bryce grabbed her wrist and steered her into into another room for a private talk. You're going to. It's not a discussion. It's not safe in the city. They were both yelling at each other, and within seconds, through the walls, I could pick up the broad strokes in technicolor. Turned out the civil unrest of the night before, had sparked a panic that the darkies were going to burn the city down, and every clear-eyed Christian should read the signs and flee to the southwestern borders of suburbia without looking back, lest they be turned assault. salt. Are you fucking kidding me? Kate said, coming back into the room as I was pulling on my pants. Her refutation of the good sense her brother was preaching made me smile, which Bryce didn't like. He was right behind her and glared at me, dressing in his sister's room. Kate looked, at, looked me in the eyes and addressed her brother with her back to him. Be sure to tell Dad I like staying here because I like niggers and kites to eat my pussy. Shit. She had a thing, I guess, and getting me involved in violence seemed to be a big part of it. However, fighting three big dudes at 10 in the AM with a whiskey and cocaine hangover is a young man's game. and I've been left it behind in my 20s. To boot, as Bryce or as I came to know him, Officer Schlegel put it so succinctly, were I not the fuck off right the fuck then, I'd never fuck anything else ever again. The badge on his hip now visible and the butt of the glock that his palm rested on inclined me to accept his plan. I looked at Kate and said, let's not do this again. He <laughs> drove away, calling Kareem to come get me before things could get worse. I'd met him before he was a righteous ex-con activist caddy. Back then, he was just another backslid, Baptist, rock-slinging, fluorescent cracker named Brad. We both did our time at Missouri State Penn, but as he puts it, he came out belonging to something, part of a movement and a friend of Allah. Well, I was born with roots, ties to an ancient tradition. A chosen people threw it all away and came out with nothing. Somewhere along the way, Brad became Salami, or Sali or Ali, and I had to get that damn swastika wiped off my skin. Somehow, we're still friends. Ahmed picked me up in his red cab at the garage where I left my cavalier for repairs and took me to the gyro place on South Grand for sustenance. Afterwards, he gave me his keys and wallet and we left his cab at his grandparents' house. Then he picked up the keys to their beige PT Cruiser and told them not to worry. Overnight, the eyes of the world were on our backyard. Palestinian activists on the other side of the globe were tweeting advice to St. Louis citizens for dealing with tear gas and police bugs thugs, hashtag Ferguson, and Abdul and his imam organized peaceful protests on the street every night, and staying on the lines through the chemical weaponry and skull-crackings, never raising a hand in violence or even defense, and landing in jail anyway. My part was to drop him off at night, pick him up from jail in the morning. Part of me felt guilty every night for not being arrested right alongside my friend, but another part of me felt smart every morning for waking up in bed. I'd bring coffee and breakfast burritos and drive him back to his grandparents' home where he'd crash out for a few hours sleep. On our third time through this routine, we caught a police tail leaving the station, and the day after that, there were strangers sitting in parked cars across the street from his grandparents' home in shifts. White power activists started calling his job, trying to get him fired, and harassed his family, following the elderly Baptist to the grocery store, the church, and the bingo. Akeem quit staying there out of respect for the good people who'd raised him. And that's how my apartment became his new crash pad. Truth be told, I kinda hoped some of those I am Darren Wilson t-shirt wearing dipshits had the sand to make a camp on my block so I could stop by and say hi, but a daylight drive by was all they ever dared. Till that night. Kate was there, of course. She just firebombed her own brother's house, shot a flare gun through the window panes of his kitchen, and started a fire that left some smoke damage. But overall, it was a pretty chicken shit little blaze. It wasn't the only attack on cops' homes in the area that week, but it was the only one that brought me any personal blowback. She tried to burn his shit down while he was out upholding the Constitution, and no one had been hurt, but a ragtag group of self-appointed Minutemen had been vigilant in their neighborhood watch. Followed me, I'm sorry, followed her car all the way to my place. I still can't decide if I think she knew. She told me she'd done it in retaliation for the coffee shop full of tired marchers, the cops, her brother among them, and tear-gassed, forcing the panicked patrons into the blacked-out basement or out the back door in handcuffs. Shooting her brother's window had got her pretty horny. She told me the story of her revolutionary actions in a feverish bout of reversed Taoist cowgirl that chapped my hips. I had in the presence of mind to grab Obi Malman's cap- kiddish cup and secure it under the blanket with me before I passed out. In the morning, she was still there, and I felt a twinge of affection for the crazy bitch as she lay in innocent sleep. God knows it wasn't lust. I hadn't been this sore since the day of dry humping Rebecca Weiss in junior high, grinding my crotch into her ample thighs until I would orgasm in my underwear. I'd often wake up in the morning to find scabs on my dick where I'd bloodied against the zipper of my jeans. Now, she wasn't getting to me through my poor abused genitals now. It must have been my poor abused brain. When I picked up Farouk, he looked damn near beat. I got him into the car, and as I tried to hand him coffee, he ignored it, shut his eyes, clutching his kidneys, and said, just let me get some sleep. Listen, man, why don't you take a night off? Let me go in your place tonight. Saddam did something then that I'd never seen him do. He wasn't weeping, but a tear escaped out the corner of his left eye. I didn't say another word the whole trip. I opened the passenger side door for him and helped him out as he put his arm around me for the walk to my front door we didn't get there. They hit us three feet from the curb and had bags over our heads before I even knew they were there. They rung my bell pretty good, drove around with us on the floor of a van, somebody's foot resting on my head most of the time. When they took the hoods off of us, we were inside a parking garage. The side door of the vehicle slid back to reveal a cadre of grim red-faced members of the Westboro Baptist Farm Team, Officer Schlegel front and center. His eyes narrowed when he saw my face. Toady number one noticed that. You know this piece of shit? Fuck yeah, Toady two chimed in. This guy knows his sister. Toady the first looked closer and recognition began to dawn. Then the Grand Dragon spoke up. What you want us to do, Bryce? You want to have them arrested? Officer Schlegel thought about it for a moment. No, it's not going to be worth trying to prosecute some bullshit arson charge. No fun anyway, I'm insured. But I don't ever want to see these two again, you hear me? Teach them a lesson for me, would you fellas? Officer Schlegel got in his car, and when the sound of his squeaky brakes faded out, the junior G-man went to work. They didn't kill us, but I for one wished they had a couple of times. I could get dentures, I suppose, but I'd never play piano again. Hell, I might not banish picking my nose. Busted mitts, swollen testicles, incontinence, broken ribs, and a knee that would never bend again. But there's nothing like the loss of an eye to get your attention. Not like it fell out of my skull, but it never worked again. The light just went out. I was like God saying, no more of that, dickwad. Straighten up. Fly straight. And Brad? Shit. Brad. He was in a coma for three weeks. Brain damage, paralysis. I never saw him again. I just asked after him. His grandparents and some members of their church were usually around praying for him, waiting by his bed for him to open his eyes. It was a month before I walked again, and the limp was conspicuous, but I'd had time to think, time to weigh things. I saw faces when I closed my eyes. I, Brad's, Kate's, Bobby Malman's, my father's, and even the smiling mug of old Charlie Berger on the way to the gallows. Charlie was the last legally hanged man in the state of Illinois, and he's buried in Chesterfield, the 20-minute drive my father took me on once on the day he told me about my namesake. Charlie was accompanied to the gallows by a rabbi and insisted on wearing a black execution hood rather than a white one, so they'd bear no resemblance to a Klan member. As much as I, married, I admired old Charlie's style, ours were not the same. During the fall, the city, county, and country held their breath for the grand jury to return with a decision on whether or not to indict a member of the power structure for performing his job with what some folks would say looked like a little too much enthusiasm. I bided my time, kept my head shaved to the scalp, and got a new tattoo, another swastika, on my neck. I started hanging around the ship kicker dives on the east side in Deep South County until I spotted Toadie No. 1 one night at the beaver cleaver in Sajay. I got some information out of the bouncer and knew when to expect him the next week. Turned out his name was Charlie, too. Huh. We had some drinks, I threw the last of my money around, and talked turned to the situation across the river and what the troublemakers and thugs were gonna do when the grand jury came back with the decision not to prosecute. We agreed it was gonna be bedlam. I told him about my neighborhood watch initiative, told him how I reported suspicious vehicles and neighbors all the damn time, but how the cops didn't seem to take me seriously. Nobody took a gimp with an eye patch seriously, I told him. He told me he ought to meet some friends of his and come out to their pre-Thanksgiving meeting and I thought that sounded swell. Next day I wrote two letters, one to Kate and one to Brad. I told Kate what her brother had done, I figured if it meant anything to her she'd probably do something pretty fucked up in retribution, but I also suggested that she seek some professional help for her whole life. In Brad's letter, I told him that he was my hero, the man I wished I could have been he was right, I'd scorned my birthright, threw away every good thing I'd grown up with and that I finally had my own chosen people and that he was chief among them. I threw both letters away. Charlie picked me up where we'd agreed and he drove me out to a special meeting place in a barn on somebody's farm way the hell out in Peelwood. It was a small group, six men in all, Bryce was not among them, but Toby Number 2 and the Grand Dragon were both present. And after the Pledge of Allegiance and a prayer that I didn't know, they took turns reporting their week's activities and observations. When they came around the circle to my turn to contribute to the group, I struggled to stand on my gimp leg. They waited for me respectfully. I told them I was there on behalf of a friend of mine named Brad, only I used his Muslim name. Hope I got it right. For a moment, it was quiet enough in there to hear a pin drop. All of them, actually. Open my jacket, let the pins fall from a half-dozen grenades I had strapped across my chest. Shabbat shalom, motherfuckers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, uh, you know, cheerful beginning to this really. There's like a billion different, like, responses I was building up in my head for this, but the only one I want to go with is... I totally got that Ghostbusters reference. <laughs> uh, our next reader is Libby Fisher-Hellman. And Libby is going to tell you a little bit about her.
1: Jed's tall. <laughs> <laughs> Best-selling crime fiction author Libby Fisher-Hellman claims she's writing her way around the genre. With 11 novels and 20 short stories published, she has written thrillers, suspense mysteries, historicals, P.I. novels, amateur sleuth, police procedurals, and even a cozy mystery. She has been nominated for The Anthony twice, The Agatha, Forward Reviews Thriller of the Year also twice, and has won The Lovey multiple times. She lives in Chicago and claims they'll take her out of their feet first,
3: you know for Libya. <laughs> okay. This story. Hi everybody. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is great. Uh, this short story is called No Good Deed. And it was published in an anthology last spring that was put together by Chris Rush and Dean Wesley Smith out in Oregon. They have a whole series that they call Fiction River and each, each, uh, each um, anthology is on a different theme, and this one was the chronicle. <clears throat> okay. Gertie Morton's baby kicked so much in the womb that she knew the kid was going to be a trouble maker. Luther didn't disappoint Born in 1943, the colicky baby screamed so much that Gertie thanked the Lord their closest neighbor lived half a mile away. Once the colic was over, <clears throat> teething began, and Gertie gave Luther liberal amounts of whiskey that her husband cooked up in their still. She sometimes wondered if that was the root of Luther's problems. Luther grew into a rowdy boy and even rowdier teen, stealing bikes and cars and whatever he could get his hands on. Which wasn't much. They lived in a dirt poor area of southern Indiana. Luther wasn't much of a student either until the sheriff's deputy caught him smoking and drinking whiskey at the pool hall. Luther seemed to clean up after that and Gertie was surprised when he came home with a decent report card in 12th grade. She proudly proclaimed to everyone she knew how he was one of the best students in the school. She learned the truth a few months later when Luther told her his high school English teacher was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and had recruited him into the group. Gertie remembered the problems the Klan had caused in Indiana over the years, and while she didn't exactly disagree with them, she didn't think it would end well. It didn't. A few weeks after Luther's 21st birthday, he was convicted of taking part in a lynching. Sentenced from 15 to life, Luther was sent to the state prison at Pendleton near Indianapolis. Three years later, this is now 1967. Luther was working in the Pendleton Library when rookie inmate Wendell Washington got out of quarantine. Quarantine was the place where they checked you in and made you take a slew of IQ and personality tests, and indoctrinated you into the system. But the prison grapevine was way ahead of official pronouncements, and everyone knew Washington, a colored boy, was in for waving a white woman. He claimed he was innocent, but the jury didn't believe him. He narrowly escaped the death penalty, but he would be inside for the rest of his life. None of that mattered much to Luther. He was white, Washington was black, and in Pendleton, the two didn't mix. Although they had to work together in the laundry or the kitchen or the barbers, you'd never hear, we shall overcome, at Pendleton, never see any marches or demonstrations. After work, the whites had their own turf, the blacks theirs. It wasn't only the prisoners, the guards, or hacks as they were called, were often more bigoted than the inmates. In fact, Pendleton had been singled out on national TV by LBJ as the worst prison in the country. Luther chuckled, remembered how everyone cheered when they heard that, like they won the goddamn World Series. So when Washington showed up in the library with a, with a hat, Luther arched his eyebrows. No one ever came to the library. It was about the only place besides a cell where a man could get some peace and quiet. Well, what have we here? Luther said. This boy even know how to read? Branson, one of the nastiest hacks in the joint, sneered. He ain't here for no book, Morton. Luther nodded. Probably wants a magazine or comic book, right? With plenty of white girly pictures? Well, tell him he come to the wrong place. Branson sniggered. Tell him yourself. He's your new helper. Luther frowned. Was this Branson's idea of a joke? The hell are you talking about, officer? Inmates always called hacks, officer, to their face, even though they barely made minimum wage and usually didn't deserve respect. Many supplemented their meager salary by smuggling stuff in and out for prisoners. Branson gave Washington a shove, and the boy stumbled, lost his balance, and fell against Luther. Luther recoiled and stepped back. The boy dropped to the floor. He picked himself up, but kept his eyes down. Sorry, Luther, Branson shrugged, but the glint in his eye told Luther he wasn't sorry at all was the dicks up in quarantine decided it. That's fucked. I had to earn this job. Two years of hard labor. How does this coon get it for free? Everyone's getting twitchy these days. All that Martin Luther King shit. So that means it's okay to give a nigger who raped a white woman one of the best jobs in the joint? Branson shrugged. Some people don't have the brains they was born with. So let me tell you the deal, Luther. You gotta do what you gotta do, and I'll make sure you get extra time in the yard. Luther knew what Branson meant. A fellow Klansman, he wanted Luther to mess the boy up, teach him what happened to coons who thought they could go after white meat. Branson was like that, always stirring the pot. Rides and threats, that's how it worked in the joints. He was supposed to do the bidding of this asshole if he wanted a break. He watched Branson walk out of the library still grinning. Luther's only consolation was that he wouldn't last long. Pendleton saw a huge turnover of hay. He shifted his gaze to Washington. who snapped to attention like a soldier. This ain't no army, Luther growled. The boy didn't move. You understand English, boy? The boy nodded. He could have been, couldn't have been more than 14, nineteen, Luther thought. Not too tall, didn't look too strong. Wooly hair, dark brown skin, jet black eyes that contrasted with the whites around them, like one of those black and whole, white Holsteins you saw in the fields. Then stop standing there and go make yourself useful. Washington examined the room with a worry glass. What you want me to do? I can't read. Shit, Luther let out a sigh. He should have known it'd be something like this. Wait till he told the others. Most of them would refuse to even touch a book if they knew a black man's boss had been all over them. And now he had one in the library who couldn't even read. What the hell were they thinking? Luther dug out an Oreo cookie he'd hidden in a desk drawer, bit into it, and glanced around. He really couldn't like, call the place a library, just a windowless room with cinderblock walls. A couple of shelves had, held a bunch of Zane Grays, a few paperbacks with the covers ripped off, and one or two hardcovers. Luther sat in front of a battered desk with an index card box on top. He devised a checkout system for the books, nothing fancy, just alphabetized by title, but he was proud of it. He marked down when the book was due back, although some men would board them in their cells especially if a woman on the cover managed to slip through the censor. Still, if this moron couldn't read, will you just go on and sweep the floor? Yes, sir. Room's in the corner behind the Zane Grey books. Can't look puzzled. Back there. Luther yanked the thumb toward the rear of the room. He finished the cookie and brushed the crumbs off his hands. Sweets went a long way toward filling the bitterness inside. Space. That afternoon in the cell house, inmates alternated between the yard and the cell house when they played cards and watched a TV, bolted to the wall. Luther told his crowd, a group of other inmates, what had happened. Holy shit, Decker said, they can't expect you to work with a nigger. Luther flipped up his hands. Branson says the warden and all, they're cranked up over this civil rights shit. Yeah, well, Branson says a lot of shit that ain't true. Luther nodded, he wants me to take care of the boy. Why did not he do it himself, Billy said. you seen what they did to those colors last month. i will go upside down over the steps until they scream for mercy. Another man cut in. Branson could be fixing to set you up, Luther. Don't do it. Luther shook his head. Of course not. I'm aiming to make parole. But it don't mean I don't want to. You still got your shank, Billy asked. Whatever happens, you best be prepared. Even in the joint, there were ways to have a weapon, and most had a homemade shank of some kind. Weakness was never tolerated. What do you care, Decker said to Billy. He'll be somebody's doll in Little Africa before long anyway. Not your problem. I heard the kids not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Decker said. Maybe they'll ship him to Logan's board. He's slow, but he seems all there to me, Luther said. Well, it won't be for long. For the first week, Luther had Washington stack books, dust, and sweet. Things that took less than an hour. What was he going to do with them the rest of the time? He ran a hand over his head. This has been a lousy idea, that's for sure. Two days later, Washington walked in with a shiner. He was limping too. Luther at his desk didn't say a word. He had an idea what happened. The boy didn't say anything and went to the back of the room. Luther thought he'd pulled out the broom, but when a minute passed without the swish of straw on the floor, Luther turned around. Washington was hunched on the floor, arms hugging his knees. So he rocked back and forth. <clears throat> Pardon me. What are you doing, boy? Washington didn't say anything, but he didn't stop rocking. A distant expression came across his face like he was someplace else. Luther began to wonder if the boy was retarded. You hear me, boy? Washington gazed to Luther with a blank stare. Luther stood up, thinking it was time to call in a guard, when the kid's expression turned from blank to scared, and he dug his head between his knees. What the fuck are you doing? His response was muffled. I've been praying, I've been saying my prayers, so. Luther was taken aback. Ain't no God in here, don't you know that? My mama says God is everywhere. Your mama don't know shit. Washington averted his gaze. A minute later, a slow tri- tear trickled down his cheek. You stop that boy, Luther said. Get, go get that broom and start sweeping. Washington didn't move. You got any brains at all? Washington scrambled off the floor and backed away from Luther, panic spreading across his face. Please sir, don't hit me. Ah, oh, good boy. My mama says so." Yeah, yeah, sure you are. Good enough to fuck a white girl, ain't you? I didn't do it. Sure you didn't. Contrary to what people saw in movies, most men in prison never claimed to be innocent. Why bother? In three years Luther had been to Pendleton, only one guy maintained he didn't do the crime. And now this nigger. Luther shook his head and went back to his desk. A few minutes later, the boy tapped Luther on the shoulder. What the fuck is it now? I got to pee, Washington said. Luther yanked a thumb toward the back of the room. There's a toilet in the corner. But there ain't no door. You never peed in front of other people? It ain't that. I gotta go, but don't come out right. I went and do it, got red in it, so please don't look, that's all. Luther scratched his cheek. Someone must have worked him over real good. The second week started off much like the first. Washington came to the library after breakfast, his face purple and swollen and bruised. He was looping worse. What'd you do, boy? Nothing. So why they beat you this time? That hat say I look at it funny. Ransom? Washington nodded. You can't do that inside. Don't ever look a hack in the eyes. If you have to, you keep your gaze flat like you don't see nothing. Like this. Luther made his eyes go empty. And when you smile, you make it real small. Like this. Luther gave him a short, quick smile. Felt more like a grimace, but boy smiled back. And when you go into a room, you pick a spot near the wall and try to make yourself invisible. Invisible? Like a fairy? Washington folded his arms. I ain't no fairy. Is that what they call you? No, sir. They says I'd be like Emmett till. You know who he was? Yes, sir. He had a colored boy accused of messing with a white girl. He was killed. Luther nodded, surprised. But they wrong. It's about me least raised. Spare me the bullshit. We're all in here because of something. What'd you do? Luther didn't say anything for a minute, and I lynched a nigger. Washington gazed at him. He dead? Uh-huh. Luther let it sink in. So you listen up you lie to me, I'll make sure you never come back to this room. You're going to get some job you ain't going to like. And don't keep calling me sir, you hear? Washington was quiet. She done lied up there in the stand. Who? Miss Mary Jane Barber. Something stirred in Luther. Maybe it was Washington's insistence that he was innocent. Or maybe it was a desperation in his eyes. Or maybe it was the fact that he didn't look strong enough to swat a fly, much, rape, much less rape a woman. Man, I wish I had more Oreos. Luther sat back down. Oreos? Them cookies you, you was eating? Luther nodded. Tell, then he found himself saying, Tell me what happened. Washington's eyes widened as if he hadn't expected Luther to ask. He came over and squatted by Luther's desk. See, I had this job in a grocery store back home. I was a bagger, he said proudly. Had to take three buses to get there. Stores in the white part of town. But I never missed a day. Sometimes they let me do other stuff. I knows my numbers. I wanted to be on cash register one day. That was my dream, So one day I'm on parking lot duty, which means I load bags into cars. This Mary Jane Barber come out of the store with lots. I done help her load the car. She gave me a whole dollar, he almost smiled. But when I get home that night, the police there, and they take me to jail, say I followed her home, made her go into her house and rape her. But it weren't me, Mr. Luther, saying she made it up. Yeah, but she got witnesses. They swear they see me there. I don't know who they saw, but it weren't me. Then we goes to trial, and I was convicted. At lunch in the chow hall later that day, Luther didn't say much. Um, I'm going to skip this part. Didn't matter much since they only got 15 minutes to wolf down the greasy meat and crap they called vegetables. Why are you so quiet, Decker? After a while, De- uh, Luther, why are you so quiet? Decker asked after a while. Just thinking. Luther knew better than to say anything in public or what passed in public in pop. Most inmates put a special kind of armor on in the joint. You were smart. You were always watching. Alert to hacks, wheeler dealers, or other inmates who wanted you to be worse off than them. Luther was always on guard. The schemes of other men were beyond his but Washington didn't have that armor. He couldn't read and barely knew his numbers. The schemes of other men were beyond his grasp. Back in the library that afternoon, Luther asked, so why do you never learn your letters? It got too fast for me in school. My mama said the Lord had looked out for me, that he had a plan. Luther asked, you can't go be any help to me here unless you learn to read. you got to file stuff and put books back on the shelves. You can't do that unless you know your letters. You want to learn? you going to learn me? Luther could see the anticipation. You're gonna have to work real hard, to put on a stern face. I don't mind, so, uh, I mean, Mr. Luther. Luther swung <laughs> his chair ground. Okay, first thing you gotta learn is the alphabet. You know what that is? Not really. You know how to count, though? Yeah, it uses my fingers and toes. Well, the alphabet is letters, and there's only 26 of them. But the way you put them together makes all the worlds in the world. Washington grinned. Just 26? That's right more than your fingers and toes together. Do you think you can learn them? I surely think so. Luther rubbed his forehead. What the hell was he doing? He cleared his throat. Well, I know a way for you to learn them, but you can't tell no one. It's a secret. Understand? There's this song they teach little kids in school. Luther taught him the alphabet song and printed the letters on a sheet of paper. By the end of the day, Washington knew the song by heart. Figuring out the letters was something else, though. It would take time. Luther knew. Before they closed up for the day, he warned him again. Now, you don't ever sing this out loud when you're not in here. Do you get it? Why not? The men in in pop and the hacks, they won't get it. Two weeks later, Washington knew his letters and could pick them out of books. So Luther began to teach him the sounds letters made. He figured it was easier to start with constants, but it was slow going. It took the better part of a month to get him to understand the connection, but once he did, the kids' comprehension zoomed up. At one point, Washington looked up from the Zane gray he had been studying. How come when you read, you don't make no sounds? How do you know I don't? I've seen you read. You're quiet, not like me. I am making sounds, but I just make them in my head. In your head? I pretend the sounds, and when you know them well, the letters turn into words. How? Here, Luther took the book from Wendell and pointed to the words on the page. As he did, he sounded them out slowly. That's what I do in my head. Wendell's eyes grew as big as plates, and he smiled so wide that his teeth shone. Luther smiled too; he couldn't help himself. The kid got it. Hey! A voice barked from outside. Luther, whose back was from t- to the library door, turned, a- turned around. No one came to the library in the middle of the day, but it was Branson leaning against the door jamb, one hand on his hip, the other on his holster. <coughs> his gaze, hard and flat, went hard and flat went from Luther to Washington. Fuck you, doing, Luther. Nothing, Luther lied. Washington looked confused. You making him your doll? No, sir, Luther said, making sure he emphasized the word, sir. Ransom shifted and rubbed his hand across his nose. Uh-huh. He crossed his arms. I guess we'll see. Then he turned and ambled away as if he had all the time in the world. Washington followed him with his eyes. I don't like him much. Nobody knows. Why are you lying to him? He wouldn't understand, Luther said. Crap, I do want some Oreos, but I'll get paid for another three days. Luther didn't see Washington over the next couple of days. He didn't know where he was, didn't know if he'd be back, but that's how it was at Pendleton. The first couple of days felt odd and empty, but then Luther adjusted. In fact, he'd almost forgotten about him when Washington showed up. He looked worse than before, when I was shown shut. His right arm was in a cast. There were bandages on his neck. He looked like he'd been hit with a tire iron. What happened, Luther asked. Washington shook his head. He'd learned. Then Washington reached into his pocket, took out a package of Oreos, one of the four packs. Luther's mouth fell open and he jerked his head back. What's this? You the first white man ever had me, Mr. Luther. Maybe the first man ever. I wants to thank you. <coughs> Luther was quiet for a moment. Then, don't you go telling that to anyone. They hear you talk like that, they'll come after you again. Why? Washington threw him a puzzled glance. It's just the way it is. Like I said before, don't give anyone a reason to pick on you. Washington looked down like a goddamn puppy hanging his head. What is it, boy? I already t- I already done told. Who? The guy who got me those cookies, told him I was learning to read and a white man learning me. Shit. But that make no sense, Mr. Luther. That that made no sense, Mr. Luther. God don't want it like that. Like I told you, there ain't no God in this place. That night Luther couldn't sleep. Strong gusts of wind the prison whales carrying the howl of the dogs in their wake, Damn the howl must be tracking a possum, he thought, or a stump. Luther heaved a breath. Had he been playing God? Next morning, when Luther got to the library, the unopened package of Oreos lay on his desk. But Washington wasn't there. In fact, he never showed up. Luther learned why at lunch. Washington had tried to escape, the hacks said. It happened a lot more than people on the outside thought. The guards caught him, then penned him up like the animal he was with a rope around his neck. How it got tangled up and choked him, no one knew. But come morning, Washington was dead. No big deal, Decker said. Shit like that happens, Billy laughed, especially in Little Africa. Luther kept his mouth shut. He went back to the library and picked up the package of cookies. He'd never thanked Washington for them. He slid the cookies in a drawer, his throat thick, the back of his eyes hot. He couldn't open them. We never put.
1: Another heartwarming installment.
3: <laughs> Warm. Warm.
1: We were supposed to make an announcement earlier, well, Jed was, but Jed's not very good at things.
5: <laughs> like announcements.
3: Um,
1: if you buy a book from Mr. Ayers, Or any book, I believe, at this point. Any book. He has a tub of books over there. Literally a tub, like you would get at the container store filled with books. You will also get to choose from those. Those are not written by him, regardless of what he tells you. But there's a book in there written by Kevin Lahelm, who's also here with us. Not anymore, be more than Never
0: mind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you just finished listening to Jedediah Ayers and Libby Fisher Hellman doing their stories from North Bar Chicago. That story by Libby Fisher Hellman, man. you know, it was crimey and it was, it was like you said, the racial overtones and everything. But, like, man, that really got you in the feels
1: a little bit, you know. Yeah, I have to agree on what was interesting about that is a lot of um, crime fiction that we we read or, or listen to in this case is always kind of before the fact. Like, while well, the crime is happening And this one, you know, that the criminals are already in, in, in prison, which I mean, I'm not gonna say I haven't read stuff that took place in prison, but it is a little rarer to have crime on the inside stories versus crime on the outside yeah and of of
0: such a situation where you know you have a character who for all intents and purposes you imagine would be innocent of the crime that he was convicted of and just is not of the temperament to be to survive in prison it was really it was really sad it was just fucking sad i can't imagine that's how you would do in prison oh yeah giving people oreos trying to learn how to read well
1: yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> I guess on the flip side, maybe you'd be collecting Oreos and teaching people how to read. I guess you are more qualified that I'd, than that. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably be the librarian. There you go. And then Jed's story. I don't know. There's a lot of Jewish stuff going on there. I'm not real familiar with with a lot of the the Jewish noir. Is that the the book that that's coming yeah. from?
0: I, I don't know if that's the title, but it is. A, it's an anthology of Jewish noir. Mm-hmm. Um, what
1: is? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that that title?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, just in general, that it just carries such a a, an emblematic um, uh, Jedi heir's feel. Um, The characters are just unredeemable, you know, shit, you know, shitty people. Um, The 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 descriptions are really rough, and and he doesn't pretty things up at all. It's very, it's a very harsh, gritty Jedi heir story. But um, just the (laughs) some of the stuff that he had in there was just so insane, like. uh, It's a Jewish, it's a Jewish person who, in order to survive in jail, got a swastika tattoo that's just, I don't know, man. Some of the things that, I don't know how Jed thinks of.
1: (laughs) What the hell's wrong with that guy, right?
0: Essentially, that's what it comes down to. Because it's like, what kind of sane person just sits around thinking like, hmm, I need to write a story where a Jew has a swastika tattoo. You know, like, I just, I don't know. I don't know where that stuff comes from
1: i liked the story i liked both stories and both of them read really really well too which was uh which was very very nice so um you know what though before we get into um the next episode i think i think we have something we, we don't usually do these during readings but we have a we have a little extra clip for everybody this evening
0: well the news happens when the news happens so uh here is the latest booked news from uh skip papersley would just hit us today
5: This is Book News. I'm Skip Hapisley. Now for the news. This week, self-labeled, self-made entrepreneur, Eric Cassaberry released his own self-help finance book. Cassaberry's book is titled, Just Make Money! All in caps and with one exclamation point. It informs readers that there's no time like the present to, quote, Just Make Money! All caps. Also included in Cassaberry's enlightening work is such insightful advice as, Stop Being Poor! All caps. Just get a finance job and ignore feelings of empathy you might have, all caps, and stop being a minority. Cassaberry's book is out on May 1st and includes the first-of-its-kind DRM protection against pirating this book. If the book is pirated, it will change the text to boring but actually helpful information about investing and finance and not the rants of someone swallowed by the white patriarchal privilege. In other news, it's really hard to find actual news about books these days. Most of the industry is stagnant, just doing the stuff they always do. Find an author, print their book, some website reviews it, money, the end. It seems as though there's not much room for innovation in modern book business. What does this mean for you? Book News may have to begin making up both news stories instead of just one. And now for the New York Times bestsellers in Fiction Recap. God Help the Child by Toni Morrison is Slipping Away at number five. Standing Tall but Brittle is Greg Isles' The Bone Tree at number four. Number three with no movement in sight is All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. Moving Along at number two is the Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, and finally number one this week is, uh, uh well, I, for- I forgot. I, uh, David, David Baldacci. I, I, I think he has a new book. Oh well, this has been Book News. I'm Skip papersley so I'm Memory Man. It was Memory Man. Memory Man by David Baldacci. Signing off.
1: Rob, um, what does he mean? The only be, he's gonna make up both stories. Um, see he, these. <laughs>
0: He's been lying to us all this time.
1: <laughs> you know, seriously, I'm listening to this and I go, okay, I know he pokes fun at people. He just flat out make up stories. I didn't think that was the, God damn it. I guess yeah. you can't believe everything you hear on the news. Well, I mean, I guess it
0: depends on the news. Apparently booked News not is uh, not as trustworthy of, a, of, a, of a, a source as we maybe thought it was.
1: Skip Papersly reporting for Fox News. Uh, yeah, exactly. <sighs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so there we go. Big thanks to Skip Papersley for sending that on over. And if you tune in to the next episode, which will probably be tomorrow, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, um, we will bring you the other two readers from Noir at the Bar Chicago at Sylvie's Lounge, and that will be Heath Lawrence and Dan O'Shea. That's right. So come back then. But until that time, I'm Rob Olson, and I'm Livia Sned. And keep reading.